Let's see. How do you know if you're a pirate? Oh, the Lord. Uh, I, the screaming people you're killing should be a good indication. No, 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 no. That's wrong. Oh, I'm sorry. Any guesses, Carl? Um, you have an eye patch and a peg leg and a parrot on your shoulder. Also wrong. Also wrong. Oh, darn. <laughs> the answer is, you just are. Ah, all right. Thank you, Flash. <laughs> I think we should leave that in. Yeah, yeah. No, get the, get the dad jokes in the house. <laughs> Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I'm joined by my friends Flag Taylor and Carl Eric Scott for another of our conversations on Florian Henkel von Donnersmark, the greatest German director extant. We previously talked about his great Oscar-winning movie, The Lives of Others, Das Leben der Anderen, which was a sensation for its portrayal of the Stasi, of East German communism, and of the predicament of art and beauty in the pursuit of personal freedom. Well, it's 13 years later now, and he has made a movie that is in many ways a companion piece that again deals with totalitarianism and art. And since Carl and Flagg are the authors and editors of Totalitarianism on Screen, the book on the lives of others, I can think of no better couple of gents to discuss this movie with. The new movie, also nominated for the Oscars, also made a sensation for its subject and its treatment, is called Never Look Away in English, or Werk ohne Autor in German, Work Without Author. It deals with a famous German painter, but it is not a biography. It is based on his story, but it is deeply fictionalized and transformed into a work of art that's really comparable not to biopics in Hollywood, but to something like Tarkovsky's Andrei Rubliev. And so, ladies and gentlemen, get ready for a long, deep conversation on beauty and terror. First of all, flag, Carl. Thanks for joining me again, and let's go through the plot and introduce today's hero to our audience. Sure, Carl. Why don't you say? Why don't you start and say a few things about Donner's Mark, and then um, I'll pick great. it up and do the plot. Yeah, great. Carl Eric Scott here. So Donner's Mark, of course, is most famous for his very first movie, The Lives of Others, which Flag and I edited a book of essays on. And it's been a long period until this latest work that seems akin to it. In the middle was a movie made with Hollywood, with Angela Jolie and Johnny Depp, called The Tourist. You know, you'll read a lot of people say this is just the worst movie ever or terrible, but it's basically, as Donner's Mark has said, just kind of a confection. It's just a light movie shot in Venice, shot with Jolie, for example, looking as beautiful as she's ever looked. It's a director trying something different, right? With Lives of Others in this movie, it's very much a German movie. There's a lot of shades of artistry. I live in Utah, and I had some difficulty getting friends to go see this movie with me because I had to tell them there is a lot of nudity in this movie. I enjoyed this movie. It has a three-hour running time. And, you know, once I got about 10 or 12 minutes into it, I was just captivated and lost. I had no awareness of time the way I've had in other long movies, you know, like Citizen Kane or Gandhi or what have you. You know, all three of these movies reflect a great deal of care on Donner's Mark's part in terms of the images that we see. Obviously, the tourist as a confection 
does not compare to lives of others in this movie, both of which are major meditations on German history and the impact of totalitarianism on everyone, but especially on artists. Yeah, of course, nudity is a great introduction. It's highly recommended. Uh, it's a movie full of beautiful people, beautifully shot. Go see it, people. I can agree with you that it just does not drag. It is incredibly captivating. And I guess there's just a lot of talent. Of course, Donnerz Mark wrote, directed, and produced as he does, but Caleb de Chanel, the director of photography, who's yes. already been nominated for the Oscar six times, doesn't need any introduction, does great work. As you said, it's also an incredibly deep meditation. It is also what gives the movie its captivating power. It's a beautiful movie about beauty, and we don't get enough of that. Yeah, so now it's flag here. Let me um, just walk through the plot very briefly. I'll try to be as brief as possible, obviously. The three-hour film, we can't be too detailed. We'll be here for a long time. I would separate the movie in three or four basic segments. It starts in 1937. We meet the main character, Kurt Beinart, who's seven years old. And we walk through Kurt's life for, what, 30 years. So the movie starts in 1937 and ends in the early 1960s. It's a story about Kurt's life, but like the lives of others, what's interesting is that it follows two characters and the extent to which their fates are intertwined. And so you have Kurt Barnard, played by Tom Schilling, as the young artist. And then you have Carl Seaband, played by Sebastian Koch, who had played Georg Dreiman in The Lives of Others. And so these two characters' fates are intertwined through this 30-odd years of German history. We meet Kurt's family, and his aunt in particular takes Kurt to an art exhibition under the Nazis on degenerate art. And we soon learn that his aunt has some severe psychological difficulties. And Carl Seaband is this Nazi physician who is responsible both for the identification of her as unfit. So he sterilizes her and then eventually sends her to her death in one of the camps. So we follow Kurt from this difficult period under the Nazis to this period under the GDR, birth of communism in East Germany. Kurt gets into art school. He seems to have a significant native talent. He's very successful. He's identified by his teachers as gifted, and he soon finds himself painting murals. He's responsible for both the design and the painting of large murals in public buildings that depict the virile proletarian workers, you know, happy and, and successful in their proletarian work. And there he meets Carl Sieben's daughter, Ellie Sieben, who's played by Paula Beer, and they fall in love and get married very quickly. At this point, Kurt does not know that Ellie's father is the person who's had this horrific impact on his own family. And eventually, Kurt and Ellie decide to escape to West Germany. Am I right in thinking that they escape before the wall is put up? Correct. Yeah. So so it's yeah, it's not too far before, but you can tell it's before the wall because they do not have a great deal of difficulty escaping. So there was the first two acts. The third act, they find themselves in West Germany. And that third act, you can divide into two different parts. Kurt tries to figure out what art academy in the West is the best one. He hears that it's this Dusseldorf Academy. And so he goes there to try to get admission into this Western art academy. And this first period of the third act is a period of struggle and disorientation. There's this grand experimental atmosphere at the Dusseldorf Art Academy where they're rejecting traditional artistic form and doing really experimental stuff. 
Kurt doesn't seem to be terribly gripped by any of the art that's happening there, although he makes friends with some of his fellow artists pretty easily. But he struggles for a long time trying to figure out how he can find his own voice in this atmosphere of extreme freedom. And then the last part of this third act is when Kurt finds his voice, finds his form, and discovers how to put his art into practice. It's around this time, too, that his wife becomes pregnant and they have a son the last scene of the movie, or the second to last scene of the movie, rather, mirrors the opening scene in a gallery where the Nazis are making fun of this degenerate art. And we finish with Kurt's own gallery exhibition in West Germany where his art is being exhibited, and he's talking about the purposes of his own art. It's a very moving film. As Carl mentioned, it's three hours long, so it's lengthy, but at no point do you feel bored or do you look at your watch. I think you're gripped the whole time. I guess the one thing I'll add about just the gripping nature of the film is that there comes a point where you're in Kurt's studio where he's starting to figure out what he wants to say, perhaps more importantly, how he wants to say it where he finally discovers what his artistic form is going to be. I felt like I was watching the last five minutes of a basketball game that's tied. Like you can't, you're just, I mean, if you said to me, okay, the last few minutes of the movie are going to be really gripping, but it's going to be a lot of one person in a studio with a paintbrush, <laughs> right? I, I would have told you you're crazy, but Donnersmark somehow manages to build this emotional sense of expectation and wonder. You just can't help but get really excited when you figure out, oh, Kurt's finally going to put something on this canvas. I can't wait to figure out what it's going to be. So I thought that was just a remarkable testimony to his skill as a filmmaker, that you have this kind of expectation, but you're just watching a guy with a paintbrush in a studio. It was a very interesting way to build to this peak in the film. Yeah, I think that we should just quickly say, I mean, this is one of the great art films. And I mean, it's one of the great depictions of visual art. I don't think I've seen another film that throws you up against the artist's canvas. There's a few others. You mentioned Andrei Rublev, but it's really quite impressive. So if you're into the visual arts, this is a must-see for you. Yeah, and perhaps everybody interested in art is going to be especially interested in this movie. It's rare to find storytelling that's so serious about what do the arts matter anymore? And that at the same time takes all the challenges to art very, very seriously and nevertheless comes to the answer that art is, in fact, necessary for us in our society. It's also an unusual movie because it deals with a real person, Gerhard Richter, a famous German painter. To a large extent, it is his life story, but then it was fictionalized to the point where it became something entirely different or independent from the man, if that is possible. I bet Donner's Mark will last far longer than any painters of our time, so at some point it will become independent because nobody will know about this anymore. For the time being, there's been some controversy since the painter, who was very involved in telling his story at length to Donner's Mark, then turned around and rejected the movie in rather emotional terms. So the movie, the work of art about art, already has this entire controversy about the identity of the artist built in simply in its creation and reception. 
Yeah, Gerhard Richter, I mean, one thing that's maybe important about him as an artist for the theme of this film is he was identified with, you know, modern expressionism, but he's sort of the first one that returns to representational painting, at least in a certain stream. And that's that's certainly how the Kirk character is represented in this film. He's the one member of the Dusseldorf school who just goes back to something like representative painting. I mean, there's it's adjusted, there's swaths over the canvas, it's painted of photographs so that's different but I mean many of his fellow students say what are you doing painting is dead I mean that is how modern right. and and how much emphasis on freedom there is at this particular school and you know that's at least somewhat realistic to the situation in the early mid 60s and Richter was someone who showed his modern artists there's a way of doing old style representational painting that has enough harmony with modern things that it's legitimate mm-hmm and as we already said, the movie is structured such that you go through several regimes. You start with Nazi Germany in Dresden, you move on to Communist East Germany also in Dresden, and then on to the West and to modern democratic capitalist West Germany in Dusseldorf at the Academy of Arts. And so there is a lot of consideration of the political context of the arts and of education. And there are, of course, also scenes that seem to abstract from politics. The most obvious ones deal with sitting in a tree in the middle of the countryside, but they are by no means the only ones. There are scenes that deal with friendship between men, with the love between our main character, Kurt Barnard, and his wife, Ellie these seem to have a kind of independent standing and the director puts far more work than at first emerges and establishes any number of parallels between different periods of the painter's life and different responses to the task of art and we will try to get to some of these things in our discussion but up front there's only so much talking we can do it's a very long movie and i've already seen it twice and i realized that i was picking up things that i hadn't noticed the first time around so it's a must see even more than a movie that we must talk about the place i'd like to start is the nazis and degenerate art this is the beginning of the movie it was a famous part of cultural propaganda under the nazis a traveling exhibition of entartete kunst degenerate art art that represents the worst decay in modernity since it speaks to nothing but the ugly the grotesque and therefore the rejection of life and of the community since it horrifies the people this is art in a sense at its weakest when it is under direct political attack and frankly seems almost indefensible any people you would go to anywhere in the world although they might be decent people and therefore not share the tyrannic violence of the Nazis, would pretty much concur in that judgment. And of course, nowadays, as we talk about art movies or any other such things, they are in fact deeply, and it would seem permanently unpopular, and therefore very hard to justify. This is a problem that goes way beyond the Nazis, and it has to do with the status of the artist in modern societies. Very briefly put, there is nothing that compares to the ages when various nations produced great works of art that seem somehow defining. There is not going to be another Shakespeare, and there hasn't been one in a long time, or maybe Goethe for the Germans, or of course, you can think of Moliere, Racine, and Corneille in France. For various reasons, things have changed. So from the beginning, it's somehow you have to justify what the arts are about. And the movie starts with this exhibition that we are meant to look at. 
the Nazis convinced that he has the people on his side. You can go around Germany and exhibit all these modern artworks with next to no fear of spreading corruption because the people kind of hate this stuff anyway and the artists kind of hate the people back. But next to that there are these two other characters, the young Kurt Barnard and his aunt Elizabeth. The boy is talented, has a talent for drawing, for image making, and so the question of what his future will be in this modern situation is already suspended there. But the young lady, who is spectacularly beautiful, played by Saskia Rosendahl, she's a beautiful woman and she is, in almost all these scenes, sexually provocative in a way that one finds implausible in the Nazi context and the conservative situation in the 30s. But this would seem to go together with what you said, Flag, that she's a nutcase, a good woman, but she's also insane. So she's very abnormal to begin with and would seem to be exactly what the Germans are afraid of by degenerate art, except that she is a good woman and she is beautiful rather than the ugliness that they talk about. And she likes this art and that counts for a lot in the boy's eyes. And so already from childhood he's caught in between these two things. What is closest to him, his own most, and what he loves dearest, is endangered by the situation he lives in, and this situation will be reproduced throughout his adult life, and seems to be essential to his education. Yeah, I would just say real quickly that the Aunt Elizabeth character, she's the one who says, hey, I like some of this art. So she's the first glimmering, besides Donner's marks on camera, that there might be a different view of this art. I mean, I think viewers will be surprised when they hear the Nazi lecturer on the decadent art, they'll kind of find themselves saying, well, I kind of agree with a lot of what he's saying. And you see some of the paintings are, in my opinion, repulsive. But then you see some of the Kandinsky's, some of the others, and gosh, I think you have a mixed reaction as a 21st century person. The other thing to say about Elizabeth is, yes, she has mental issues, but later in the film, she defends herself saying, it's only here and there that I get confused. And the big mental breakdown she has follows immediately her participation in a Nazi rally where she is the one who hands Adolf Hitler a bouquet as he's passing by in a parade. So she clearly has troubled mixed feelings about that that provokes her mental episode. Yeah, I agree. The one thing I'll add about the exhibition under the Nazis and then just following that thread through the rest of the movie, one of the main thrusts of the movie is to show you how seriously the Nazis and the communists take art, right? It's yeah. not enough just not to allow Kandinsky's and Miro and, and whatever else to be exhibited, but they actually have to train people to see degeneracy when they look at this art. So in other words, they can't just leave well enough alone, right. um, but they actually have to teach people how to look and how to see in the way that they want them to see. And the same thing right under the Soviets. Soviet art has to portray certain themes in a particular way, socialist realism and all that, the proletarian workers. And so I think Donner's Mark wants to show you how seriously both of these totalitarian regimes took art and the extent to which both understand the necessity that they use art to their own advantage. Well, and both the communist socialists and the national socialists make a case for their kind of preferred art as being more A, representational, and thus having an opportunity to bring out the natural beauty of human life, and B, more concerned... <laughs> The communist lecturer gives a fairly powerful speech about the way a lot of modern Western artists, they're all about their own self-expression. 
It's all me, right. me, me. And there's something to that. Ultimately, Donner's Mark film causes us to reject this line of thinking, but he shows us that it's fairly similar for both of these totalitarian regimes. Mm -hmm. So the status of individualism is in question here. Totalitarian regimes, to a large extent, emerged as criticism of liberalism, that is to say, of the politics of individual rights. The problem with individual rights is that it can make collective action impossible. It can make people prefer their own self-expression or their whims or just their reasonable comfort to what they might need to do for the community or what they may owe to politics. In this place, as opposed to others, both the Nazis and the communists were emphatically more political than we Democrats are, because they really did say, as one would have said in any place outside of liberal Europe or North America, mm -hmm. that art does belong to the people, that art should be censored by the political authorities. Now, that opinion is almost unthinkable in liberalism, but that is a very small exception, even nowadays, among the, the various political communities. Individualism is, to begin with, threatened. And in some ways, individualism was what was on trial in the politics of the 20th century in Europe, and the results were really catastrophic. It is arguable that civilization ended, and the movie makes quite a strong argument in two ways. One of them is how clueless Western artists are presented to be, and in another way, the horrifying destruction of the totalitarian regimes. Whatever people might think about self-expression, those people who took self-expression to mean radical political actions wiped out everything in their path. Right. They weren't proven to be good or right, but they were certainly proven to be strong and often victorious. And that turns out to be very problematic. Donner's Mark starts from two forms of madness. The beautiful aunt, Ellie, she is mad, but she's not mad in the way the Nazis say she's mad. A couple of signs of that are, for example, that she has a capacity for prudence. She says she likes modern art, but only privately to her nephew to encourage him, and she makes sure to shut him up, as we all had to learn under totalitarian times about speaking in public about things that might be dangerous. She's smart, she's somewhat prudent, she's not merely crazy. And whatever may be said in favor or against her taste, which the movie doesn't show much about, her madness is not the kind of political madness that the Nazis have in mind, and nevertheless she is indeed sterilized and murdered because the Nazis have problems that are more serious in their minds than the beauty of art or its ugliness. It is the life or the health of a population that is supposed to be reduced to a political obedience and to a war plan. And people who do not subject themselves to that willingly and enthusiastically are often slaughtered. The Nazi in this story, played so disturbingly well by Sebastian Koch, great German actor, is not a soldier, he's not part of German politics or of the Wehrmacht, he is part of the SS enthusiastically, but he's a doctor. He represents the way that the Nazis perverted something worse than art, but related to it. What is meant by the goodness of life? The argument that he makes as a Nazi is that there's not enough money, there's not enough food for everybody. We have to take care of the healthy and exterminate the sick. There can be no equality among human beings. The healthy must exterminate the sick for the common good. Yeah, I was struck by Carl Sieban's character, the neat parallelism that Donner's Mark sets up. So you have the fate of art under these three different regimes. Sieben, to me, represents science, right? He's first and foremost a man of science. 
And so, as you suggested, Titus, he's a committed Nazi in a way, but then we also see once you get the birth of the GDR that he's a man who can flourish in any political circumstances. And that, I think, is deeply troubling, right, that you have this character that can somehow rise to the top in any regime. And he even finds success in the West when eventually his Soviet patron has to go back to Moscow. The Soviet major who had turned a blind eye and allowed him to not be identified as a Nazi, he leaves and he gives Sivan this warning. And so then he makes his escape to the West. And once again, lands on his feet and is successful. And so I think the movie shows you that science, in a way, is not a solution to these political troubles, right? That men of science can use their gifts in a variety of tyrannical circumstances and not pay any price for it. Yeah, there's an interview about this film where Donner's Mark says, in Germany, both teachers and doctors had a lot of power and were given inordinate power. A big deal is made with Carl Sieben's character about the fact that he is violating the Hippocratic Oath. So there's a classical view of medicine that his view has put aside. And this is visually represented in the film by an image of him in his office. He's posing next to a skeleton on one hand and a diagram of a woman's womb with a baby in it on the other. He is simultaneously a giver of life a bringer of death. There's a powerful scene of him delivering a baby that's having trouble in the labor, and that's what allows him initially to thrive, to survive in the East German regime. And later on, he's going to be the director or major consultant for a West German hospital, and he's with uh, gynecology. And he's also, it's important to say, skilled at abortions as well. Yeah, so science or skill would seem to be neutral morally. Yeah, so when he saves the life of the Soviet major's son, this is what allows the Soviet major to become indebted to him and therefore not alert his uh, Soviet masters to the presence of this Nazi. But the Soviet father, the major, at one point he asks Sivan, why, why did you do that? And Sivan says something like, well, because I can. Yep. And that and sort that, of encapsulates his being in one line, right? It's amoral scientism run amok. It's interesting, though, because Kurt's character at one point is asked by one of his fellow communist workers, why are you painting that sign so meticulously and beautifully? And he echoes the line because oh, he says the same thing. I guess the doctor has responsibility with what he can do. The artist has responsibility with what he can do. That's what I'm getting from that parallel. Mm -hmm. But it also asserts the inequality of man in terms of skill or art. Yep. The point is made by the Nazi doctor explicitly. He says the only way to survive in this world is to be the best. Not good, mm. not one of the best. Be the best. Don't we believe in that? Isn't that why we reward the best athletes? It's March Madness now. Isn't that why we throw so much money at celebrities or in Silicon Valley meritocracies? Isn't it because we believe in being the best as a justification of human action and perhaps of human life? But of course that is at odds, as science must be with our democracy, it is at odds with our principle of equality. Mm -hmm. And in the case of medicine, it would mean health only for the healthy, not health for the sick. Right, right. 
So this would seem to be constitutive to who we are as people. We are stuck struggling between loving everyone in some way or allowing for the fellowship of everyone in a democratic equal way and preferring excellence, the best, not just everyone. And this indeed is shown in the parallels, not just the contrasts between this horrifying doctor who nevertheless has great political skill and the painter who is pretty clueless. That's the other thing about the doctor. He is savvy. He has a species of prudence, if a low one. He knows how to conceal his wickedness when he must, and he gives it rain when he can. He's as willing to serve the egalitarian Soviets as the inegalitarian Nazis because his desire to kill the sick is not as strong in him as his desire for his own self-preservation. Right. And so, in fact, for him, excellence is a way of hedging his bets. He puts himself first, not his principles. Again, the Nazis are presented as essentially thugs, people who believe in the proposition that crime pays. That is another version of the statement, I do it because I can. Mm -hmm. This doctor murders people in large quantities, if possible, because he can. When he can no longer do it, he stops doing it. It's not the principle with him. Yeah, a couple of plot details we haven't mentioned yet. Seabend and his ability to thrive. He thrives to such an extent in the GDR that he wins some sort of award that's given by the party. Right? For humanism. He gives, yeah, he gives this speech about how, well, I'm just a cog in this great machine. <laughs> so he's perfectly skilled at repeating yeah. socialist propaganda. And then, of course, the other thing we haven't mentioned, Sieben discovers his daughter is pregnant with Kurt's son and then contrives a medical reason why he needs to abort the child purportedly for the health of his daughter. So he aborts his own grandchild and then, I think, suggests to his daughter that the unfortunate result of this will be that she can't have children. So unlike Gerhard Richter, in Kurt's case, his father-in-law is the actual man who murdered, who signed a death warrant for his aunt. So that's a Dickens-like connection that doesn't play out in real life. But Donnersmark, right. I think, used it skillfully. The other thing is there's something mysterious going on with the abortion. And this reflects, I think, an element of the miraculous in the film. There's a parallel miracle of Kurt's artistic breakthrough, which maybe we'll talk about in a moment. But it happens around the same time in which his wife, Ellie, becomes pregnant. And this is signaled, if you look carefully, by some of the images. These are, again, images of nudity, but there's an iconography to them that signals things. What's mysterious about the abortion is when she comes to West Germany, she has a miscarriage and she's told by a doctor, well, that abortion that was done to you by her father, it was mistaken and it harmed some fibers or something. You can't have children anymore. It's one of the low moments of the film. And she says, you know, my father did the very thing contrary to his supposed eugenic mm -hmm. philosophy, right? So we're left to wonder, did this man who emphasizes skill, who advertises himself as one of the most skilled doctors in Europe, did he botch an abortion? Or did he actually try to botch the abortion? It's not clear. Either way, it does not matter because you might say a miracle occurs or something natural happens that's beyond the eye of science and she's still able to give birth. 
So that's an interesting part of the film. And I think there's a parallel going on in the film between Kurt's creativity, which is the big highlighted thing, right? But there's also the simple creativity of motherhood, of birth. This is a very natalistic, birth-driven movie. I mean, the scene of the delivery of the baby is quite visceral. <laughs> and we've mentioned the nudity. So there's an emphasis on the importance of motherhood here that maybe is Donner's Mark's answer to what Titus is raising about the problem of talent. Talent could take you in a eugenics direction, but Donner's Mark has done something to undermine that. Ellie is as important and her creativity is as important as Kurt the artist's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. And there's more than a few parallels between you know the act of creation in terms of giving birth and the act of creation of an artist. I mean, that parallel is all over the place, especially in the third part of the film. Yeah, so the movie tends to state the issue of grace in terms of natural beauty, including the beauty of young men and women. But there is also this other poetic treatment of grace which hinges on providence. Indeed, there are two seemingly miraculous births. One helped along by this Nazi against his principles out of self-preservation, and one without any admixture, it would seem, of ulterior motives or particular skill. At the end, Ellie and Kurt's child. And when the first child is born to this Soviet wife of a Soviet officer, you see how science triumphs over superstition, the mm. woman herself says, the gypsy fortune teller told me mm. it would never right. come to pass for me. She is afraid and in her fear her superstitions come to her and it is the scientist who is contemptuous of her as an inferior race and contemptuous of her as a stupid superstitious woman who saves the child's life through his skill, which you have to say is very impressive. But then something else than the superstition is authored as a proverb, as a saying. He who saves one life saves the world. Mm. This is one of the few very charged religious statements in the movie. And it turns out that it is by saving this child for purely self-interested reasons. And even by the horrifying episode later of aborting his own daughter's child, that later we come to the miraculous birth at the end. Because had not the Nazi looked out for himself, he would not have had the daughter and all this stuff happen later. This is a poetic version of Providence. The various repetitions of scenes throughout the movie point to this poetic treatment of the issue of grace. Now, so far we've talked about the parallel between the painter, Kurt, and the doctor who becomes his father-in-law. And that is indeed an opposition between art and science, but is also an opposition about the character of politics. And it allows Donner's Mark to reject modern tyranny, which is horrifyingly scientific. But then indeed there is this other parallel between Kurt and his wife, who deals with the beautiful as well. They meet in the art academy in communist Dresden, but she does tailoring. Partly, one assumes, because the separation of men and women was a big deal in Soviet regimes as it had been in others before. It's only men who study painting that we see, and it's mostly women who study tailoring as we see. That also signals something else. She tailors a suit of clothes, for example, for Kurt as part of their courtship, just like he paints her in his portraits. They try to offer each other beautiful things, but what she has to offer is also good, not just beautiful. 
painting his beloved's portrait in his Soviet murals, in a sense attests to grace that his soul has not been corrupted by the commands he has to obey, but is utterly frivolous. A suit of clothes, however, is very useful. That is the beautiful understood in relation to the human good. And it fits the woman's character. She is, to an extent, retiring and even obedient. Like the suit of clothes, she conceals within shame more than seems. So she very gradually, and only because of her own personal tragedy, reveals to her husband the evil of her father, of which she knew. And Mm -hmm. you see, therefore, what this abortion does is to give a equivalent of terror at a personal rather than the political level of World War II. This man is willing to destroy his own lifeblood, his own family. And that creates a radical crisis. Tyranny is as old as mankind, but the notion that people would destroy their own children is shocking. The notion that it could be done by a modern theory of science and politics is even more worrisome, of course. That would seem to repeal human shame, which is what prohibits the people who know about this man's evil to talk to each other. And the human concern with self-preservation is not even possible at the level of the family anymore. You can't even say, sure, we're dealing with tyranny, but we have to take care of each other in some way, and we'll make the best of it, as best we can. That will not do because the corruption of these modern tyrannies will enter the family. And just like this SS monster turned communist ideologue does it to his own family, so also we see in the nice, kindly German family of Kurt Barnard a failure of love. They see that this woman who's part of the family, Kurt's aunt, she's nuts, and so they send her to a Nazi hospital. Now, they didn't know what was going to happen. They hoped that the doctors would help her, but the truth is that they just didn't want to deal with how nutty this woman was. That was a failure of love before it was a failure of prudence of giving somebody over into the hands of Nazi doctors. And that's tied up with another thing about Kurt's family, which disappears about a third of the way through the movie. His mother keeps badgering the father to do the practical thing and join the Nazi party, which he won't do out of basic decency. And he eventually does it, and it then costs his career after the war. And that's what his wife says to him. This will be your capital after the war. Having joined the party before the Mm. victory, you're going to prove by your loyalty that you deserve rewards. And in fact, it turns out to destroy the family. The self-seeking and the shamelessness and the failure of love are not wicked. That woman is not evil, nor her husband, but they are weak enough that their failures end up provoking catastrophes. And the father reacts to his new humiliation in communist Germany. He is not allowed to teach anymore. He is not allowed any honor anymore because of his flirtation with the Nazis by committing suicide because he's reduced to the ugly job of washing steps. He's reduced, that is to say, to what poor people do. After that, the family disappears, which is a silent judgment on the part of the director on them. We are not shown the mother of the family, only her screams. Kurt sees his father having strangled himself in the attic, and he doesn't console his mother. He just disappears from his family from that moment on. Not everybody gets redemption, and you don't have to be a monster to be involved in evil that ends up being monsters. That's a very harsh situation, again, to do with the crisis of individualism and of love. There is an entire way of life that dies there. Thereafter, you see Kurt trying to reconstruct on the basis of love, even with all the compromises of his evil father-in-law, some evidence of human goodness and of the goodness of life. Yeah, I 
Donner's Mark shows us, I think, more vividly than anything I've seen, the suffering of Germany. Now, granted, that suffering is wrapped up in immense guilt in most people going along with the Nazis and then most people in East Germany going along with, with the communists. But I think you have some insightful points about Kurt's family, but I think overall we feel bad for them. Kurt's father was in an you might say an impossible situation, right? His life was ruined because he would join the Nazis then after the war because of a very strict denazification policy. He has no possibilities for employment. We are shown in one of the most haunting scenes, the destruction of Dresden by the Americans and the British. The one, I think, major moral failure on the part of the allies I mean, Dresden is symbolic of the entire strategic bombing campaign. And this is something that was represented in Gerhard Richter's art. We're told early in the movie that Dresden is the most beautiful city in Europe. So art is beautiful, but it can be wiped out. Uh, we also just see the devastation of what's called in German history, the zero hour, the moment after defeat, when the entire nation essentially has been destroyed most people have been morally compromised. It's a terrible situation. So I do see this movie as Donner's Mark sort of paying homage to that degree of suffering that his own people have gone through. Maybe this is a good transition to talk about something that initially seems more light and fun, and that's the Art Academy in the West, Dusseldorf, which in my mind represents, you know, Western freedom at its most anarchic. So, yeah. So, Flag, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that art school. Yeah, let me introduce that just by way of a comment of the overall theme of the film that connects to your point about the suffering and ugliness of what the Germans went through. So maybe some of our listeners will remember that the inspiration for the lives of others was this remark that was made by the Soviet writer Maxim Gorky. He's reported to have heard Lenin say something like, oh, Beethoven's Appassionata is my favorite piece of music. I could listen to it every day, but I won't listen to it because if I did, it would disable me from smashing the heads I need to smash to complete the revolution. And so in that film, the beautiful, in a way, is understood as a restraint on, you know, revolutionary brutality and ethics. And so one way to look at this film is Donner's Mark is sort of doubling down and asking the question, well, can you evoke and find the beautiful in Lenin? <laughs> in the darkest, ugliest moments of the 20th century, those things are true. Can you find beauty in the ugliest truths, right? And so that seems to me the challenge of the film. So we get all the experience of the ugliness of the Nazis and the communists. And as Carl mentioned, then you find Kurt in Dusseldorf at this premier academy. And what I was struck by when I Initially, when Kurt visits the academy to try to apply, he literally gets a tour of the academy to see what each particular artist is doing. I wish I had seen the film more recently. It's been a month or so, and I would remember some of the particular things. But <laughs> I think it's just an utter disaster. I mean, it, it is anarchic. It's a mess. There's nothing remotely beautiful. And there's even one scene where you see one of the artists, he's sort of like a used car salesman. He's trying to convince these bewildered bourgeois Germans to buy what he's selling. 
And I think Donner's Mark's portrayal of this is about as dark as you can get. And I'll even double down and say, I was thinking about the Maxim Gorky anecdote. And Gorky famously was one of 35 Soviet writers who Stalin brought to the White Sea, the Belobor Canal. Right. One of the darkest labor camps, uh, labor projects in all of Soviet history and write an anthology saying how wonderful this labor camp project was. And so uh, in a weird way, I thought that there was a parallel between Gorky and his fellow useful idiots going to this camp and these useful idiots at this art academy in the West who are just doing absolutely nothing to seek the beautiful. And it's just utter corruption. And so, so I, I don't know. I, I thought Donner's mark yeah, was, was so being really, really critical quite, of, yeah. Uh, you know, it has at least two very serious, obvious moral statements against this. First of all, when he's in the East and planning and plotting in secrecy to get a bit of money to run with his wife to the West, Kurt is shocked and can't believe that in the West people would complain about bourgeois art or about bourgeois habits thinks that escaping to the West will mean some of the things he doesn't like about the communists are going to be off his chest. Whereas, in fact, of course, in some ways, rabid leftism was art in the West. And that is a deep humiliation for people who come from communist tyranny. The other statement is just before Kurt, fearful, eager, goes to see this school that he has been accepted to, you see him actually run from the east to the west. He's got nothing but a small briefcase. His wife and him, they're in a refugee center before they can manage to do anything to live in just poverty, not homeless poverty. And he's done all this so that he could find a better life. And some of that is distraction. You see him go to see Psycho and have a coke with his wife. And then this academy. And I'm telling you, movies and coke are a much better sign of Western freedom than this ridiculous academy. And the whole moral drama and the risk of life and sacrificing everything he had left behind him in the East, compared with this dreary nothingness, is tacit criticism by montage rather than diatribe or rant, but it is very destructive, right, as you suggest. Now, I will say in defense of these kids that it's not their fault. We're talking about 20-something kids brought up in prosperity by parents busy hiding from them how hard life is, who are just playing around. They're doing stupid things playing around. There's a girl who slashes canvases. There are these guys who do what would now call be video art or this sort of MTV thing, painting themselves one white, the other black. There's some lady shooting arrows at the canvas, and I have nothing against women shooting arrows, but uh, that's uh, <laughs> not art. And then we get to my favorite guy in this whole academy, who becomes the best friend of Kurt throughout the two-thirds of the movie, played by a lovely young German actor, Günther Preusser, who does for a living beating nails into canvas. He does nail art. And we live in a world where he would get no respect or attention if he were just a stupid carpenter, because that doesn't count like it counts to be an artist. And so he does this instead. And you get to see with these kids as with Bart Simpson. Couldn't all this talent be put to better use? It's anarchic, as you said, because these people have no purpose. And there's a kind of weird abdication of teaching, right? You get this supposedly wonderful director of this academy, but we're told that if you're a student at the academy, you're never supposed to show him anything that you've produced. He gives a few speeches, one of them 
there's a German election coming up and he says, don't vote, vote for art. And then he makes some comment, too, that parallels something that the socialist art teacher in the GDR has said. The socialist teacher said all art should be in the service of the people. And the Western, the academy director in Dusseldorf says something like, only art can restore people's sense of freedom. So on the one hand, there's this, I don't know, putting art on this pedestal, taking it utterly seriously and having these grandiose expectations for what it can and should accomplish. On the other hand, there doesn't seem to be anyone who's willing to sort of push the students to help them accomplish what he thinks it should. So it's a very strange atmosphere. Yeah, and I would just add to this saying that I read it more as tragic comedy than as dark. I mean, I think it's a very fun and funny set of scenes when you're introduced to the Academy. And it's modern music, nice jazzy, uh, yeah. stuff. So yeah, it's not and all it's, bad. And it's a relief, frankly, after what we've experienced cinematically in the eastern part of Germany. So I think Donner's Mark is having some fun here. The serious part of it is that this director does sort of lay out a creed of absolute individual freedom, that really no one can judge the achievement of your art except yourself, and that this is the only possible response to, you know, the Nazi horrors, right? And so somehow Western freedom is caught up in what they're doing there, um, and it's some kind of, it's presented I guess this is the leftist aspect of it, but it's a very, you can think of it as very libertarian as well. This is the proper response of a free society to the horrors of World War II. And we actually learn a kind of interesting personal story about that own director in that light. So I think the, the basic thing we could say here is that Donner's Mark has ingeniously given us, on the one hand, the Nazis and the communists attacking modern art, right? not representational enough, not serving the common needs enough. And at the other extreme, there's this Dusseldorf Academy, which is just, this is the place where people say painting is dead. And it's all about individual expression, dogmatically so. And then it seems that Kurt's achievement is to find a path, a place in the middle, right, where he's going to use some elements of the modern freedom and he's going to use some elements of representational art. And I think that's important, you know, the ending is kind of anticlimactic, but it involves these buses honking. Um, it's going to sound strange for me to describe it that way. But that echoes a scene earlier in the movie where the Elizabeth character um, gets these bus drivers to all honk in unison. And she says that is what the artist wants to achieve, that kind of blaring, dissonant, but somehow exciting so Donner's Mark simultaneously, I believe, has a respect for that and a respect for the old representational traditions. So he's in a he's trying to weave a middle path. Yeah, and you can see from Donner's Mark himself that his movies tell stories, and it is only yeah. the movie as such that tells you all the story in a way that none of the characters, for example, involved can quite grasp it. They have different levels of understanding of what goes on, but there's more to understand. And that means that in a way it also can be shared, that you can learn and you can tell other people. This is what we mean by calling art representational. There is a form of storytelling and it is comprehensible in a reasonable way. Now, I will say about this art school that it combines the highest promise of modern reflection on the beautiful and the obvious polished mediocrity that actually corrupts more or less yes. everywhere you look, the arts. And that is an unsettling thing to have to deal with. 
As I said, I don't blame these kids or most kids who want to be artists because it's natural for kids to want to be noticed, to have somebody who thinks that they're worth some attention. But they are taught from an early age that they should be narcissists and that they should be addicted to fashions, to yeah. try to catch the new trend and ride it because it's a world where nobody gives a damn about you. This is the only way. This is what we nowadays call celebrity. And mm -hmm. it's, yeah. of course, now in its death throes. Far more you hear about celebrities now being reevaluated as monsters than you hear about new celebrities being created. But it wasn't obvious then. It seemed like it was the future. And a lot of people who weren't wicked or even that stupid just fell for it. And indeed, a lot of talent was corrupted by this because that's the way. And so the bus is honking. This is done first time it's in Dresda, it's in Germany. These are very conservative, rigorous people. They do not have the free-willing manners of Americans. It is a very strange and unusual thing. The blaring of the honks of the buses is a gesture of social provocation. It is a disturbing of the peace in a place that actually takes that seriously. And that is tied up with why it is exhilarating. It has to be transgressive. And that is modern life. Art has to be shocking to even attract attention. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I think, you know, the three of us are, I guess, for lack of a better word, more conservative in our taste for art. I mean, I believe that the 20th century was sort of afflicted by this avant-garde disease. You know, you always had to be one step ahead of everyone. And that led to a lot of bad things becoming art. But I don't know that, I mean, Titus, you say it's in its death throes, but that's the problem with art in the 21st century, that the death throes just keep going on and on and on and on. I think Donner's Mark is trying to push us forward, trying to say there are some good things in the modern art impulse, and then obviously showing us Dusseldorf some very bad and ridiculous things. So how yeah. do we push forward? For him, Gerhard Richter is an example of how to push forward. The composer, who is a coincidence, also named Richter, Max Richter, that he uses for the film is also, I think, an example of, you know, combining some things like modern dissonance with, I don't know, narrative structure, classical structure. So I think that's what Donner's Mark is for. So I would just, again, encourage anyone interested in the arts to heed his voice and to see this film. Again, as Titus said, there's so much more going on visually in this film than you would normally get. I really felt it was a cinematic experience like few others. And there's a lot of information coming to you in images as opposed to plot or dialogue. Mm -hmm. It's different that way from Lives of Others, which is a very plot-driven film. Yeah. And I guess it's natural for the movie about beauty to be so concerned with all these things, the complexity of the beautiful and what it is that it has to offer. So we should make the case for this crazy new modern art. The requirement of this professor, don't dare ask me my opinion, stems from his understanding that in modern societies, today in democracy, you don't need tyranny for this problem, people are essentially conformist. You can't have people give a billion shares or views to a video on YouTube without essential conformism. You can't have super popular phenomena or celebrity without mass conformism. And that is deeply dangerous. And so he teaches these young people who are clueless to suffer up until he believes that they are worth the attention. If they can mm. hack it, at least they have a chance. If all they've got is conformism, including the conforming to the opinion of a teacher, then they're not going to hack it anyway. If they can't deal with this, they won't be able to deal with modern mass society, with a world where art is nothing but advertising, in short. And so I understand his principle, and there is something to be said for the story you mentioned, that he was a soldier in World War II, he was wounded, and he was saved by the very people he was supposed to bomb, 
which is this semi-shamanic experience. There are these Tartar Cossacks who live in primeval huts, apparently. It, you know, it's incredibly primitive. And despite his terrible wounds, they save him by keeping him warm and putting a lot of fat on his burnt wounds on his skull. And so all his art is just putting up these fleeces and plastering them with fat, which is an incredibly stupid thing to do. It's worthless. <laughs> but it also shows what his principle is. Think about what will save your life and never let go of that and everything else doesn't matter. Now, he's the second of the two teachers of art that Kurt deals with. The first one in the Soviet realm teaches him to be less obsessed with himself and to right. be somewhat conformist, which isn't a bad thing. And so he does what the professor tells him to do, which is to paint the socialist realist murals, which at any rate sharpen his craft, his skills, which are natural. Uh, he has a remarkable hand and eye. But at the end of when he abandons, runs away from Soviet East Germany, he sends a letter to that professor to explain himself in a way which is a sign of respect. But there is nothing that he can offer that man because all of his art will be damned now that he is an enemy of the people by running away. And so everything will be destroyed. But also because he just has nothing to offer because he's not an artist. Whereas in this other case... At the end of the movie, he does send an explanation to his new teacher in Dusseldorf, and he offers him one of his paintings, because now he does have something to offer, and that mm -hmm. is a deeper sign of respect for what this man had to offer him, a man who saw the crisis he was going through, and who told him that what he's doing is garbage, because it's just fashionable, yeah. and that he has something better to do, and that's, of course, fairly demolishing to be told that, but if you can't hack it, how are you ever going to do something? Carl Flagg, I think we're ready for our final segment, which I think of as Kurt finally coming to maturity. I see the movie as his discovery of what art is supposed to be and therefore his preparation to be a painter before he is a real painter. And this ending is split in between two very different kinds of experiences. One of them, which we have already mentioned, is success. He gets a gallery, he gets an exposition. The press is there with questions about the meaning of art and all that, and he, for the first time, has to deal with this knowing part of the public, the critics, on whom, to some extent, his career, of course, must depend. But also the friends who are there to support him and who have helped him along. But then there is the other part that has to do with his own personal life and his own intuitive realization of the trauma of Germany in his own family. Yeah, I think there's a nice parallel between the, his artistic breakthrough and his unplanned confrontation with his ugly, difficult past. Um, part of the discovery, well, there are a few things that push him along. One is the mundane task that his father-in-law gives him of getting his passport, and that leads him to this passport photo. And then the other detail is the West Germans have finally found this guy, Kroll, who is the director of the eugenics program. And so this guy's picture is on the front page of a newspaper. Kurt sees that. And so even though he doesn't necessarily know that there's this concrete connection between Kroll and his father-in-law, he nonetheless puts these two images together artistically. So again, his discovery of beauty is pulled out of the ugliness of these images from his past. 
Yeah, so he develops this technique, which we haven't talked much about, photorealistic painting. And one of the things he does is to project photographs, newspapers, like you mentioned, on a big screen that's a canvas, and to draw them out and then to paint them. As we see, photorealism isn't just reproducing photographs to him, but it serves this double function. You can see in the movie, and presumably he as an artist can see his own memories in some strange way. He ends up superimposing these three things. A picture of his aunt, who was murdered by the Nazis, whom he lost as a child, and who spurned him on to artistic greatness. A second image is this Nazi doctor who supervised all these monstrous slaughters. Kroll, who is the bad guy, absent for most of the movie, but who hovers over their destinies. And the other one is his father-in-law in these passport pictures that you mention. And one of the things he does is he paints all these three things superimposed and sends them to his new teacher in Dusseldorf. That's his own confession, as that professor had confessed to him, the experience that drove him to art, or that focused to him the predicament to which art is supposed to give expression, what is to say, saving you from death, and in the case of the professor, and recovering for you some experience of the human good and of grace, perhaps even providence. The other part of the technique is Kurt's pictures are not just photorealistic, they're always brushed, as you said, Carl, so that things end up looking veiled. And that seems to correspond to this experience that's typically human, but also specific to this artist. Even as a young boy, his aunt told him never to look away, not to hide things from himself by putting his hand in front of his eyes, which puts everything else out of focus, in a blur. Now, the importance of this veil and its meaning, it's more complicated than this experience, because it also seizes on what the beautiful exactly means. Now, we know about the beautiful from common experience, first of all, that it helps us discriminate. When you see something, oh, that's beautiful, that attracts your attention, and indeed it builds a kind of consensus. We tend to agree on what things are beautiful, on what people are beautiful. Generalized, as Socratic philosophy does, this is to say that the beautiful or the being of the beautiful is the capacity to recognize wholes, the power in our souls to make images of things and to recognize them as what they are which is to say that you can tell where something starts and another ends, for example. How can you tell that the margins of a thing are what they are or the limits? It's Mm -hmm. because you have a sense of the wholeness of things. It's not just a jumble of images, shapes, and motions. Color and shape, as Socrates says in the Menon, are inseparable for us. They give the boundaries and they give the specific thing that is this thing that is not the other thing that allows for all recognition and therefore for all thinking. The photos end up being part of this too. In an anticipation of digital technology, he uses photography and screening things or displaying things as an aid to memory. Mm-hmm. It yeah. is not a replacement for memory. It is an aid to memory for him, and it allows him to practice his art. He's not afraid that photos or film are going to replace his art, which is part of his natural confidence and his daring as an artist. Right. So this breakthrough it happens maybe at two or three levels. I mean, there's the personal breakthrough for him finding his particular style. And that he's finally got an art that's in consonance with what's inside him and his personal story. So at some level, he's dealing with his emotions about his father-in-law. And this parallels directly the Gerhard Richter story. It also significantly ties in with something that Donnersmark brought up in the lives of others, which is the way in which artistic or writer's block 
can be related to not being in tune with reality or the truth. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. that the gay Arab driving character in that film has the most trouble writing when he's not aware of key things going on in his life. I and mean, the breakthrough only comes at the end of the film when he learns the full story behind the Stasi surveillance of his life. Similarly here, Kurt makes the breakthrough when he intuitively senses, he knows his father-in-law was involved with the Nazis, but he doesn't know the details. And so this art, this juxtaposition of these images is his really coming to terms with his intuitive sense that that's the case. And what he doesn't know, and we never get any evidence that he does know, is that there's even a connection to his own past, the image of his aunt. I mean, there's more to say about the artistic breakthrough. Again, it's very excitingly portrayed. Titus and I both feel, if you look carefully at the artistic breakthrough scene, that there's a suggestion that providence is involved, that God helps shut, or the wind shuts this shutter at a key moment that allows this juxtaposition to happen. That's obviously pretty interesting. So, yeah, the music, everything makes this an unforgettable scene. So we hope you will experience it also. Yeah, and there's the other... a psychological confrontation in that scene too, right? I mean, one of uh, the things that, yeah. one yeah. of the things that proved to Kurt idiosyncratically that he has to get the hell out of the Soviet Union or communist Germany in his case is the fact that his father-in-law, the ex-Nazi, wants to have his portrait painted by Kurt, and he's really happy with the painting that he gets. And that shows Kurt that actually he's doing something wrong. Whereas in this crucial scene, his father-in-law comes looking for his passport and he sees this juxtaposition of his own passport photos with this young lady he sent to her death and his boss, whom he has been protecting to some extent for these last 18 years as communists and democrats alike hunt him down to send him to jail for his war crimes. And nobody knows these things and this man who has been so savvy and domineering and contemptuous all along all of a sudden gets scared and becomes polite, deferential, and runs away. Yeah, he will. It's an amazing piece of acting. The father-in-law has dominated Kurt all throughout the scenes in East Germany and West Germany. And so this is the moment also of Kurt's asserting himself as a man against this domineering figure. It happens through art. And you see he's the inverse of C-band is in a way the perfect inverse of Kurt in that the reason that he's been able to live his life in the way that he's wanted to and seemingly not be touched by all the evil that he's been involved in is that he never faces things. He never looks things squarely. He never sees things for what they are. And then at the moment when he's forced to see that image, right, he's finally forced to look at what he's wrought. Conversely, I think Kurt I don't know how many of the reviews you all have read, but more than a few of the reviews have said that Tom Schilling's portrait of Kurt is kind of listless, that it lacks energy. And I say this in a review that I've just completed. That's wrong. The portrayal that Schilling gives of Kurt is of someone who is willing to look and be still and behold things. You see this again and again in the film. There are probably more moments than I could mention, but just a couple. One is when he first meets Ellie. He just looks at her. He's not speaking. He's not trying to insert himself into the conversation initially. He's not asking her out initially. He's just looking at her, appreciating her beauty. And I think that capacity just to be still and look at the world and behold the world is crucial to his success as an artist. That, again, is part of this artistic discovery at the end. He sees the photographs and appreciates their truth 
and figures out how to arrange them. And again, that's almost exactly the opposite of what the other artists at that academy are doing, which is trying to insert themselves into the world, pound things, splash things on things, break things, right? Be active, and he's just the opposite. That's very true. There is nothing violent in him. And I completely agree with you that the characterization is very good and thought through. It may not be eye-catching, it's not the sort of thing that gets you rave reviews or awards, but it happens to tell the truth, because it connects the man's art to his character. Part of what he has done is witness what has happened in his own life, very much like a spectator. It really is the case that in certain ways he's a coward. He has never confronted his father-in-law, for example. This is not all bad. Among the many double scenes in the movie, you see him washing steps like his father did before he committed suicide. He's not humiliated by this because he's not so self-important, but that also means that he never has the courage to confront his father-in-law. His wife complains about him more than he does. He has none of the manly outrage instinct for violence. And this is the more serious criticism. He has almost none of the manly instinct to protect his wife. He does mm-hmm. certain daring things, like run to the West with her, and they will have a life together. And you can see that they are husband and wife, but he's not much of a man, and the movie doesn't lie about it, doesn't try to turn him into a revolutionary. Yeah, right. I mean, until his artistic discovery, he's in a horribly degrading situation of having to rely financially upon his father-in-law. That's why he's you know, undertaking this menial passport task and why he's gotten a job at Seabands Hospital washing steps in a deliberate, cruel echo of the job that his father had. Just a little touch there of Seabands creative, subtle cruelty. Yep. Um, but wonderfully, by the end of the film, they're making fun of that. And through the power of art, through his artistic friends, he's able to triumph. I'll just mention one final detail on this artistic breakthrough. When he presents his art at the gallery, he tells a big fib about it. Well, these are just photos from other amateur photographers. I don't know these people. So the power of this art is intensely personal. But he makes up this art gallery story. And somehow the phrase work without author gets attached to it. So Thunders Marx is having some fun there, some meditation on art going beyond even the theory that is advertised to the public. And again, the film was titled Work Without Author in Germany and many other nations. Yeah, I mean, I think that's bound up with what I was talking about a minute ago, which is Kurt's capacity just to look and behold. And also what you were saying, Titus, about the Socratic discovery of the being of things. Once you apprehend the look of things, you yourself sort of disappears, right? It's not your perspective, it's what is <laughs> that you've discovered. It's almost a self-negation. It's not all about you at all anymore. It's about your discovery of, of what is. It's about the discovery of the truth. Yeah, that's a very good point. And I think it gets to some of the essential things that the story is dealing with. So the press conference shows, in a sense, the arrival. This guy and his friends will now have to face the public. And these critics are what we call snobs, which is not a good word for it. They're Philistines pretending to be snobs. They're people who don't have much of a sense for art or the beautiful, who try to make meaning out of it to excuse their ignorance, so to speak, or their lack of taste. And he has to deal with that. His friends have to deal with it. 
the one among his friends who was always a salesman, as you said, a flag. He just faces up to it, goes back to his family's money and starts a gallery and he'll be selling other people's art because it's not really in him to make it. But you see that they share all these knowing winks and smiles that correspond to their scenes of male friendship and playfulness that are childish but also have exhilaration about them in as much as they claim independence from society. They're quite amusing and, in a sense, thrilling. But this also deals with, as you said, the title, Work Without Author. You're painting pictures of pictures, of photographs you didn't even take. There's no more authorial ownership there. And this would seem to be the climax of a tripartite structure. The Nazis think that art should be used essentially to glamorize terror. They are a warlike party, like his father-in-law who loves, although he's a doctor, to watch himself in the mirror, and his daughter saw him in his damn Nazi uniform with the Totenkopf, the death head on his helmet. How do you not realize that this is a death cult? But they want to glamorize it, and of course, Nazis have turned from terror into king. We deploy Hitler as a kinky thing because it's such a dangerous, such a thrilling thing to say, so forbidden and so alluring, and... But originally, that's what it meant. Glamorize war, destruction, power. The Soviets don't use art that way. They glamorize work and therefore insist on egalitarianism. But that again turns out to be a concealment for power. Indeed, part of that is this Nazi guy. He does fine among the powers in the Soviets because he's just like them. But part of it has to do with something else, that you have to do a lot of violence to people to completely remove from them their individuality. And that's what Soviet realism is supposed to achieve. The people get to be glorified in this metaphoric way in arts, but nobody gets to be a human being, as though each of us, all of us, could be reduced to the people. But we're also who we individually are. The people cannot feel your pain, much less die your death for you. Your mortality is your own. And the Soviets lie about that, which is tied up with the fact that they enjoy killing people a lot, like the Nazis did. Democratic capitalism in the third part is a different sort of beast. It's confused, it's chaotic because of the character of freedom, but it also makes this other thing possible. You don't necessarily have to obsess over yourself, but you don't have to lie about the fact that you're a human being exactly either. It is at least possible with a certain degree of prudence and luck to make your works of art and expect that they speak that they have an effect on people that is neither reducible to a political command nor to a personal idiosyncrasy. That's the meaning of work without author. Of course, the author is the author of his work and the authority on his work for that reason. But it doesn't mean we can do what we always try to do in liberal democracy, ask him what the movie meant, ask him what the picture meant. Why do you need the picture if you can get an explanation then? (laughs) Or what Mm -hmm. good is a picture if it's not good enough with an explanation? (laughs) This reminds me of the fine American poet Wallace Stevens, who famously said the poem should resist the intellect almost successfully. (laughs) It's a long struggle. It's hard to get to these things. Insights have to be earned in some sense. This brings up also the theme of providence, grace, freedom, and the relationship to chance. This young man comes up with only one insight of his own, but it's enough to justify him in the eyes of his teacher. And in his own thinking, he eventually thinks that that's right, that he said something intelligent, even though everybody else is laughing at him or just puzzled. He says, think about numbers. If I just come up with six numbers, that's just a meaningless series and nobody cares. Now, let those six numbers be the lottery numbers. Here, I'll read them to you out of the papers, this week's lottery numbers. All of a sudden it means something, doesn't it? We feel like somehow there's something there. 
Now, of course, in the case of the lottery numbers, we have a perfect combination of convention and chance. It's just random numbers, but by convention we agree that this series of six under these conditions will lead you to a fortune. So the question is, how do you get to a fortune? But that is all he can do for people. He can just tell them that it looks like serendipity, like a series of six numbers that have meaning for us. But he can't tell people that there is an intrinsic coherence to them, unlike the lottery numbers, that art has to stand for itself. And if you discover some parts of what he's trying to tell you, they will guide you to other parts of what he's trying to tell you up until you can put it all together for yourself. But you can't remove from it the necessary aspect of chance, of puzzlement, of perplexity. It cannot be as easy as, oh, I get it. This is that. I recognize it. This is that. You cannot mm -hmm. transform art into making a chair. But that also leaves room open for inspiration and therefore for providence. And that is the deepest claim in the movie. Why should democracy be the place where you talk about this sort of artistic freedom? Because it is the only case in which you can bring up the question of self-knowledge. What does your art teach you? What does it teach you about being human and therefore about your own specific predicament in the way that you are capable of learning? The lies he tells to the press seem to be necessary, partly because they wouldn't listen to anything else, but partly because he has to protect for people the experience of encountering art without having somebody explain it to you before you've even seen it. He cannot be reduced to a didactic form of enlightenment self-expression, and he cannot remove from other people the fact that there are other people. That's what perplexity teaches you. Somebody tells something to you and you don't quite understand it. That's because you're you and he's he. Now, in those cases where I say something and you just get it, then that kind of feels like we're all the same. We're mankind as such, not simply individuals. We can share something. But it always starts with perplexity, in fact. And if art loses that power to perplex people, it has lost entirely its importance. And it can be reduced, in fact, to a form of obedience. Now, whether that obedience is fun for 20-somethings and kink for rich people who throw millions of dollars at garbage, or, on the other hand, reduced to a political command, where self-knowledge is reduced to obedience, to tyranny, these are both forms of destroying human freedom, however different they are. I think what you just said, Titus, about the lies, Carl brought up him telling these fibs about the art at the press conference. Another way to put that would be to say the kind of discovery and knowledge that the artist needs to produce his art is not the kind of knowledge and discovery that the onlooker needs to appreciate the art. That those are two yeah. separate kinds of knowledge and to try to tell the story of his own coming to see the necessity of confronting this memory would be to kind of tyrannize over the audience in an irresponsible way. So he's, yeah. in other words, confident that the art can speak for itself. Yeah, what, That's proven true by the fact that his fellow art students almost immediately see the greatness of him and his art, right? I mean, they know that he is a completely different animal than what these other people are doing at that art academy, right? He's just on a different level of artistic success, and they know it's the case, and it's because of the art. It's not necessarily because they've been involved in his discovery because they haven't, right? This has been an excruciatingly personal path for him. Yeah, so I think we've said enough to get you interested in the film. And, you know, like with a painting, you're going to have to subject yourself to its own perplexity. We have not exhausted the strangeness and the impact of this film. So we hope you'll see it. Yeah, it's a wonderful movie. It's deep, but it is also strangely funny. Just that gallery opening. He has a nude of his wife, you know, from the movie on the walls. His wife is there. Nobody can put two together. <laughs> 
Yeah. They're just not staring at the obvious. And that, I think, is true of all of us up until we start actually paying attention. (laughs) And the movie has that character as well. And the movie ends with this guy saying, you know, I'm done with this sort of painting. It served its purpose. But his future as an artist is going to be something else. And in a way that preserves the independence of the artist. Donner's Mark doesn't want to tell you this is the truth about this artist. And now you can reduce him to the story I have told you. It is just his education. It is just his coming to his first deserved success. But which also he has to go beyond. And he says he's going to be doing something else from now on. He's very interested in color palettes. Which doesn't really make a lot of sense. You'll have to wait to see what he actually does with that. Yeah, I mean, Gerhard did have different shifts in his style, but I think it's fair to say that a lot of them do fit with this initial breakthrough. You're right. I mean, we don't end the film saying he's arrived at the style, and and that's that. There's room for development and freedom, and yeah. Well, Carl Flagg, thank you for joining me. It has been a long and lovely conversation. I can only say in our defense that it's not as long as the movie. (laughs) (laughs) And let's do this again sometime soon. Sounds good. Thanks. Thank you.